Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sisters in Colour, the podcast where we bring you amazing women of colour from around the globe and more around Australia. Today, we've got a very dear friend of mine and someone who I have known probably since I first landed in Brisbane. We've got Dr. Faiza Al-Higizi on um, the podcast today, and she has been... Um, how do I put this? A light in this space and, you know, in this conversation around diversity, equity and inclusion, around gender equity, you know, watching her and, you know, the amazing work she does in this space and the complexities and how she navigates and has this really deep, rich understanding that comes from lived experience and, you know, tremendous education. I'm so privileged to have her on the podcast today. Hello, Dr. Faiza. How are you? Hi, Christine. You are always very kind to me and, and make me look much more glamorous than I really am. <laughs> no, you are. In my eyes, you are one of the women that whenever somebody talks about gender equity, intersectionalities with faith, with race, with, your name is what comes up in my mind as being somebody who um, has a very deep understanding and is not talking from just, uh, you know, a off-the-cuff philosophical, but really from a place that is grounded in lived experience and really understanding um, that space. But before we get into all of that, I would like to start with people getting a sense from you of who are you? Who am I? Wow, what a question. Uh, can be philosophical about that or can yes. we just straight on? So look, I... I see myself as probably um, in a philosophical way, a global citizen like you. I grew up in a continent um, with parents from different backgrounds. I had a privileged upbringing. I had international education. I could speak, you know, languages, different languages. And then as I progressed in my life, I was also privileged enough to travel, see different cultures, understand the world from different perspectives and grow as a person. And then I landed up in Australia here some 25 years ago or something like that. That sounds like a very long time. Probably I was thinking yesterday and I've probably lived in Australia longer than I, than I have lived in my own country of birth, which is Sudan. And um, I come from a family that had always uh, enjoyed having conversations, discussing issues, uh, engaging intellectually with the world. Uh, my earliest memories was looking at books and flipping pages and being interested in stories. So that's, that's something that I love, just stories. And I think I learned through stories. So um, the fables, whether they were Western fables, Beauty and the Beast and all of that stuff, or whether they were local um, fables and myths about my own culture, uh, jihad and all these sort of things was something that really captivated me. I also had the privilege of being the daughter of a man who was incredibly kind and incredibly generous. And he was a storyteller. 
So I have these uh, very pleasant memories of me lying next to him, you know, in the backyard, because Sudan is a very dry country. We lived mm -hmm. in Khartoum. It's a very dry country. So we have these expansive crystal clear skies and uh, beautiful clear air. Once the sun sets down, then you get this beautiful clear breeze and we would sleep in the backyard. So we, we camped all our lives in the backyards of our homes and slept there under the stars. And I'd be, you know, counting stars at night and falling asleep in just that expansive sense. And my father telling me stories, he was a very spiritual person and his stories were about, you know, biblical stories about Joseph, Moses, uh, the prophet Muhammad, uh, uh, Abraham. And I have to tell you, my favorite was Moses because mm -hmm. he did magic. <laughs> 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 Love it. You know, he had, you know, he had this uh, capacity mm -hmm. um, to cross the sea. And, and in my mind, he crossed the sea, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and and probably in my mind, I uh, a film reel was going. My mm -hmm. father would tell the stories and I would imagine them in my mind. So I was captivated mm -hmm. by these big stories and grew up with an understanding that. Um, life is not a smooth right, okay. uh, that if we open ourselves to it, it will teach us a lot and, and we can progress uh, in that life. But importantly, that having people around you who really mm -hmm. care, your family was important, you know, your community was important and that issues that matter need to be addressed. So that is how I see myself um in that sense quite complex I suppose yeah and you've mentioned Moses and faith so faith is a core part of your identity who you are can you tell us a little bit about um the early development of your of your faith as a young girl growing up in Sudan what was that like Ah, uh, this is fantastic. And thank you for asking this question. I, I just love it. Because my earliest memories now that I'm talking to you, you know, again, I'm imagining my earliest days. So I grew up in Khartoum North by the uh, Nile, the River Nile. And uh, as I said, my father was very spiritual. So I learned about Islam, uh, my faith from him. So uh, we have five times uh, prayers during the day. And I would wake up uh, really early in the morning and see my father sitting on his prayer mat, um, doing grace in a very soft voice. And I would just go and sit next to him and, and feel a sense of serenity sitting in that space and, and, and participating in his prayers. And as I started growing older, uh, he would recite verses from the Quran and I would recite after him. So he taught me how to read the Quran. He he taught me the stories um, of Moses, Jesus from the Quran. And, and my relationship with faith became uh, an intimate one, not one of just ritual and um, uh, boundaries, 
but one of connection, one of understanding, and and one of being one with the world, one of kindness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the values that I hold in my life come from those early days and from my father's spiritual understanding of what faith is. So, despite him being a very religious person, uh, we went to Christian missionary schools. Mm -hmm. So he was a devout Muslim man, yet mm -hmm. he decided that all his children would go to Christian missionary schools mm -hmm. because he felt that we're all praying for the same God. And at the time, those schools in Sudan were the best that provided a global education. Mm -hmm. So he had the foresight that he wanted his children to have a global education and not just be bounded by you know mm -hmm. a standard education and a standard understanding of God and of life and things like that. So in school, I had friends from all over the world because the school was the best in, in the city. We had uh, ambassadors' children. So, you know, um, and, and at the time, Sudan had a diaspora from uh, the south of Europe. So we had Greek friends, Italians, um, you know, all sorts of people. Um, and that was a really nice way of being introduced to the world and being introduced to what we now know as multiculturalism and the complexity of multiculturalism. So at a very, very early age, all these um, ideas of diversity, of complexity, uh, were sitting side by side in my life. And uh, I think I was able to navigate them in, in, in a simple way that probably helped me as I grew up mm -hmm. to know that these ideas can sit next to each other without really, um, without tension. Mm -hmm. If we allow them the space, we, we can embrace all of them. That And I think that underlying philosophical understanding is that we are all one. And I think the more we get to understand that, the more we get to be in harmony with one another and we can sit side by side with our different values, our different beliefs, our different anything, but we can all symbiotically recognize that we are all we are all one. Now, still sticking with some of those early days in Sudan, tell us a bit about what, you went to a Christian missionary school. What was that environment, uh, what was that environment like? There's a lot of misconceptions around what education looks like in an African country. So people don't really know, like people think we're a city, like it, it always gobsmacks me sometimes when I have to educate people that, do you realize that my school pretty much looked like the same as your school? <laughs> 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 how I went to school it is pretty boring there were no lions or hyenas sitting next to me I still had to kind of go to a game park to see all that I've got kangaroos in my backyard that's the first time that I knew wildlife could just rock up to you but can, oh, you, can you educate people what what school was like like what was a typical day like for you from from what you can remember and what are some of the most joyous memories that you remember about your schooling um in those early days uh christine this is fantastic you made me laugh but you're absolutely right school was a beautiful time 
And uh, I'll just give you context. So the school that I went to um, was by the River Nile, you know, it like 10, 10 meters from the banks of the River Nile. It was in a very posh neighborhood um, mm -hmm. next to government buildings, you know, overseeing the River Nile and the church uh, next to the school building was one of the most beautiful buildings I have seen as, as a young child. So it was built beautifully. It could have been a building in any European city, high ceilings, beautiful, clean. Um, we were ferried to school on a daily basis uh, by my father and sometimes by a driver driving in a car. We didn't walk to school. There were no hyenas or lions along the way. There were police officers. There were traffic lights. There were, you know, traffic congestion. Uh, but they were beautiful, beautiful times. Uh, as I said, it was an elite school. We had mm -hmm. the standard Christian uniform. I think it was navy blue with uh, a white shirt underneath. And um, uh, wh when you're in primary school, it was just a navy blue dress. When you went to middle school, it was, uh, you had a, a square collar uh, with a shirt underneath. So we couldn't wait to wear the white shirt underneath because that would show we're growing up. Yeah. And when you went to <laughs> high school, the neck became a V and accentuated your body as a young woman with the shirt. Mm -hmm. And so, we were always looking forward to getting, you know, the V-shaped neck. <laughs> it's amazing. It's maybe. those little things, isn't it? Those little things that help you to sort of form your, your sense of identity. And when did you start to get an idea of what you might like to be when you grow up? Look, I think uh, I went to, through phases, but mm -hmm. for me, the common thing was, I wanted to do something different. I wanted mm -hmm. to be daring. And, and that's probably because, uh, um, you know, I, I am in the middle, the middle child in a, in a big family and education has been in, or continues to be really important for my family, both my mother and my father. And I remember my mother telling us, uh, we, we're four girls, telling us, uh, I was, I must have been seven or eight years sitting us down and saying, hey, girls, um, I want you to get a degree before you come to me and say, I want to get married. And we mm -hmm. were like, why? She said, because then you have agency, you have independence, you can choose who you want to spend the rest of your life with. And if that man does not, you know, measure up your standards, you can just kick him out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell him to hit the road. <laughs> Absolutely. So you live life based on your own standards. Mm -hmm. And and that was the message from my mother. It wasn't that you're a girl, you have to get married. No. You know, again, the myth, we're an African family. We're a Muslim family. We come from the Middle East. We're Arabs. And yet... My mother was a staunch feminist, wanting yeah. her girls to get an education, to be independent, to have agency, to choose who they want to spend their life with, and to live that life based on the standards that they choose, not that the man chooses for them. 
Um, and so that that's how I grew up. Uh, that's how I went on with my life. Um, yeah. Excellent. So in terms of from an academic perspective, tell us about how you uh, transitioned from high school to university. What was that transition like? And how did you determine what course of study you would take? What course of study? Um, so I think when I was in um, middle school, I wanted to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. simply because there were no female pilots anywhere in the world. And I wanted to be the first female pilot. Again, the challenge, mm -hmm. uh, breaking new ground. Um, and then I, I, I think I encountered uh, someone who started talking about uh, global health and how when, you know, you provide people with certain uh, amenities, then you lift the whole community, clean water, um, you know, access, uh, shelter, and so on. So I decided I wanted to be an architect, not because mm -hmm. architecture was cool, but because uh, with architecture, I could engage in developing neighborhoods and, and, and houses that would lift people out of poverty, would create good environments, and so on. So I studied architecture. And, and again, University was fantastic. It expanded my views. It got me um, to know a wider group of people. It moved me away from the privilege I grew up in and the sheltered life I had into an exposure with a wider group of people from different areas in Sudan, because Sudan is quite complex, multi-layered, um, diverse in its tribes, uh, its languages and so on. So I got exposed to that. And, and again, that was a, uh, a period of growth for me. I think I paid more attention to the social life, uh, to my social life and my social development at university, more so to, to my academics. I was just happy to get a B. And I didn't want to be the top of the class. I was just happy to pass, but enjoy what university offers. Yeah. And what were some of those things that, you know, were, were like part of your social life? Like what was university life like? Ah, oh, gee, I, um, uh, so uh, I went to University of Khartoum and that's like the top university in the country, you know, a prestigious uh, almost the limestone university for us. It was built by the British. It was Gordon College. It was. It had history. It had, you know, um, status. And so, being a graduate of the University of Khartoum was big thing, and and studying architecture was even bigger because every year only twenty five people from the whole cohort of thousands of students applying for university go into architecture. So I was one of the top twenty five people who went into architecture. Uh, but I think the, the joy of it was the exposure to the diversity of people. I think I remember at the time we had a large number of international students and that really attracted me. And we had a large cohort of uh, Palestinians displaced from Palestine coming to Sudan and being, um, being enabled to engage in education and so on. So I was surrounded by these groups and I always hang out with boys. 
I didn't have many girlfriends. So I had lots of boys who were my friends and you'd find me in the cafes, drinking minty, um, you know, uh, eating beans for lunch, sitting on the grass, having conversations, discussing the politics of the world, um, looking at buildings as the sun went up and down, just observing as an architect, observing how buildings engage with the environment around them, um, going to seminars, uh, trying to learn languages because there would be courses about Russian languages and so on. And so I doubled with Russian, I doubled with German, whatever, you know, my imagination, whatever caught my imagination, I was open to it. I embraced it. Um, and, and, and it was fun. It was fun. We'd go to the cinema, see movies, come back at night. Um, it was also a turbulent time in Sudan. I wasn't politically engaged, but I was aware of the politics of what was happening. Um, being a woman and being engaged in political resistance at the time was uh, a bit problematic in the sense that, you know, as a woman, you'd be exposed to um, gender violence, mm -hmm. sexual gender violence. And so my mm -hmm. mother was like, do not get politically involved. Yeah, you would get detained, you would be exposed to gender sexual violence, and I don't want mm -hmm. you to go through these experiences that might just damage you as a person. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so I was on the margins observing the upheaval, the political upheaval that the country would go through, and, and just, you know, wanting to be part of it, but remembering my mother's message, stay away from it, this is too big for you, you cannot handle it at this point in time. But it was interesting times. We saw some of our friends get detained, get tortured, and when released from prison, they would come to university, you know, with puffy eyes and broken limbs and stuff like that. So um, life was uh, complex, textured, rich, and we had exposure to everything every aspect of it and that that was university life for me it exposed me to all these sort of things it exposed me to international politics um to foreign interference into political life of people and how that influenced um you know the everyday uh, living of a person now how did you segue to then be in australia uh, that that again is quite interesting because when I started university, I just became interested in um, knowing people from different parts of the world. And I came across, at the time, there was no email. So, you know, uh, pen pals. Oh, yes. Back those days, we had pen pals. <laughs> I'm showing my age here. <laughs> oh I don't know how we survived in, in those days. <laughs> the yeah. instant gratification. So pen pals, um, I was a member of uh, the British Library. Mm -hmm. um, and one day I was flicking on a magazine and I saw pen pals and I was looking down. I saw someone from Australia I was like, oh, my God, Australia. That, I had no idea what Australia was like. We read about indigenous people in primary school. It was just one lesson, but that stuck into my mind. So I wanted to know about Australia. I started corresponding with someone in Australia and we kept corresponding, you know, 
for a very long time. Yeah, mm -hmm. throughout my university, he would uh, he would send me information about Australia and so on. And the funny thing is that when I got when I um, was engaged to my husband, I found that he was also interested in Australia. And he said mm -hmm. to me, "If we ever leave Sudan and and decide to migrate to another country, I would like to live in Australia," because when he was uh, doing his PhD in uh, in London. He, uh, I mean, London is a melting pot of all nations. And so he met people from all over the world. But mm -hmm. he said he was impressed by the Australians. They were third income, you know, um, they were quite, not, not simple in a simple way, but uh, they won't stab you in the back. If you needed support, the Australian people would be the first people to come to your aid. And so he really liked that just, and he said, they are a bit like the Sudanese people. Mm -hmm. um, they are honest. They are just salt of the earth, fair income sort of people. So if I go to any country, it will be Australia. And I said, oh, funny, I've got a pen pal in Australia that I've been corresponding with for the last 10 years. So let's consider that. And the step we took was because again, Sudan went through political upheaval. Um, it, it went through, it went, it descended from having a civil democratic government into a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a time where I was, you know, getting a little bit impatient with the politics. And um, I almost got detained at some point in time. And so the family was a bit concerned and they decided that maybe we should just think about leaving the country because at the time um, political detainees disappeared. We yeah. had what we called ghost houses where uh, anyone in opposition would be taken to a ghost house, tortured, and then they would disappear. And so the family started getting a little bit worried about the situation. And um, we went to Egypt and then applied uh, to come to Australia as skilled migrants. And, and the application process took us two years. Mm -hmm. By then I had my daughter. And so we came to Australia with just our clothes, a bag of clothes and $2,000. Leaving everything, started... everything behind us, leaving um, roots that went down thousands of years and coming mm -hmm. to you know, the end of the world and starting life in this country. So what was early life like for you? So you're a wife, you're a young mother, you're in a new country. Obviously, the culture is different. The food is different. The language is different. Uh, you know, the religious practices are different. So what were those early days like for you in Australia? Uh, it was... I was very nostalgic. I missed my family. I missed my language. I missed all those. I missed the food, all those sort of things. And uh, I think uh, it was made easier because my pen friend then became uh, our friend here. He became real friend. Uh, he picked us from the airport, became family. Mm -hmm. uh, we spent the first two weeks with them in their house. Uh, they became our uh, referee when we were renting, um, you know, a house here in Australia. We lived uh, in the same road. We basically spent the first two or three years 
you know, being emotionally dependent on that man and his family. And I just mm. want to um, say a shout to Ian Hamilton, Janelle mm. Hamilton and their children, uh, the support, the, the emotional support they've given us. Uh, I don't think I would have survived that uh, journey of migration and resettlement in a new country without that level of support. It was the first time in my life where I was totally disconnected from an extended family and probably uh, for uh, those of us who've lived in extended family understand the depths of the links that connect you. It's almost like an ecological system of yes. humanity, that social network where you feed onto each other. And if you cut from that, you, you wither away. And so they provided some of that uh, social nourishment and, and enabled us to survive and with time to thrive. Everything was different. Uh, even though I had a, a global education, the Australian accent was a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> Getting used to the Australian accent took me some time. And I think in my early days, people thought I was a bit slow. Uh, because people would be saying something to me and I would have that glazed look in my eyes. Like, what they are would you talking about? Yep. Then they would repeat themselves again loudly and slowly so that I would understand them. But it was just a different accent, a different music uh, to get used to. There weren't many Sudanese people at the time. There were hardly any Sudanese uh, we were introduced to uh, a woman in Toowoomba and we used to spend the majority of our weekends traveling to Toowoomba so that we could be with someone uh, who would cook us some Sudanese food. We would go all the way to um, West End where we could get some of, um, you know, the ethnic food because West End okay. at the time in Brisbane here was the place where you could um, get the Greek food and the Italian food. And we were used to that having lived in the Middle East. Um, we were used to the food from um, the Greeks and so on. And, and my husband and I would go almost like every month, buy things in bulk, bring them, and just have that comfort of having the food with us. So uh, it, it was challenging for me, emotionally challenging. Uh, mm -hmm. I found that my qualifications as an architect uh, were not recognized here. Uh, so it was, what do I do now with my life? Um, so I thought it was an opportunity for me to try something else. I went back to university. I did a master's degree. Um, and then I entered the public service. Uh, same for with my husband, even though he had a PhD from Imperial College in London. He couldn't get a job in Australia because he did not have Australian experience. And so these are some of the issues that the structural issues of um, I don't want to go all the way and say discrimination, but the structural issues that can be uh -huh. barriers um, to integration into a society and to giving the best of the skills, the knowledge that you bring with you, you're almost stripped bare of those and, and um, forced to reinvent yourself. So both my husband and I had to reinvent ourselves by going back and studying and, and changing profession totally. So I was an architect. I was never able to 
practice architecture here in mm -hmm. Australia. But I didn't actually know that. I didn't okay. actually know. <laughs> I was like, what? She can build buildings? <laughs> so that is yet another another thing that I have learned um, about you. Now, um, you talked about some of the structural uh, challenges. And I guess in terms of the work that you do now and your PhD studies, tell us a little bit about how some of that, I, to me, the word injustice is still what comes up because during COVID, I remember the Australian government was considering, you know, letting medical students out early because there was this crisis within the health system, right? But we have overqualified doctors. And like, this is a story that, you know, everybody knows. It's, it's you know, you've, we've got the most overqualified Uber drivers in the, in the world, you know. Um, tell us a bit about how that informed your PhD studies and what you do now in the space of diversity, equity and inclusion. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, that sense of um, inequality. Um, is, is something that I became aware of uh, in my settlement here in Australia. And, and perhaps because I come from a, a background where I was the privileged elite in my own country. So to come here and to find that everything is difficult. Um, so getting a job was quite difficult, especially for someone who is visibly different like me. Um, uh, you know, and, and the response that my husband and I got, even though we were highly qualified, master degrees, PhDs, was like, oh, you're too qualified. So we really can't employ you. We need someone with less qualification. We can't afford to pay for you. And we're like, we're happy with whatever you pay us. We just want a job. Yeah. Um, so we stayed for a long time um, in government. And again, uh, at the government level, uh, there is the microaggression that happens that is unnoticed. Um, uh, the glass ceiling for certain groups of people is much lower and much and, and a lot thicker than it is for others. Um, we hear about uh, the gendered glass ceiling, but if you are then the intersectionality of gender, race, and religiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, don't forget that after September 11, being a Muslim was a liability. So I had. Oh, you were persona non grata. Absolutely. <laughs> All the layers of disadvantage, gender, religiosity, um, you know, uh, race, skin color, it, all of those just um, compounded. Uh, but I suppose the resilience that we as Africans and, and as Arab grow up with and the sense of optimism that we grow up with uh, makes one just continue with life and persevere and, and um, uh, engage with the world in a positive way. That sense of victimhood or victimized or so is not something that I'm familiar with or I engage with. Um, I, I just engage with life in the best uh, capacity and and um, and show my resistance in different ways. And that's why I then ended up 
being part of different organizations. My first uh, induction into civil society resistance and advocacy was with the Islamic Women Association. And I give a shout out to my friend and mentor, Galila Abdesalam. I, I think mm -hmm. you probably know her. Yes, I know Galila. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I mean, she was the one who inducted me and mentored me in my early days about um, how do you advocate in a democratic society? How do you use your position um, and your words to raise awareness with politicians? So I was always tagging along with her to meetings with ministers and to events. And uh, so I, I learned uh, the role of civil society and and that became important for me and I continued with it so that then influenced my PhD so for my PhD I wanted to understand yes I've been doing advocacy for the last 10 years or so but we have achieved little mm -hmm. you know and um, that is true <laughs> yeah like we would be thinking that we have achieved a lot when everything is good but the minute something goes wrong it turns back to square one. And we are doing the same thing again and again and again. And so for me, I wanted to get an understanding of how can we do advocacy better? So my PhD was about advocacy and my passion is about gender. So it was looking at how, how do women engage in advocacy? Uh, and, and the study was a global study looking at women in different countries, uh, looking at women's advocacy uh, on uh, changing legislation and so on. And, and that gave me a better and a deeper understanding uh, of how you can achieve advocacy as a civil society player, um, not as a politician, not through violence, but through words and how to frame your message and align the work that you're doing with the principles and the values of the current environment. I think that way you become much more powerful. And so I am now using some of those ideas um, in the many spaces that I inhabit. Uh, and so some of those spaces are again about um, gender equity, about, uh, you know, the intersectionality with race, culture and religion. So um, I do a lot of work with the government on domestic violence, because that's an issue of gender equity. Mm -hmm. And on the multicultural space, again, uh, I do a lot of work on uh, informing government policy uh, on issues of cultural diversity, um, I work in the space of health equity, so my work now at the university, uh, the research I do um, titters on the edge of health equity. Uh, so these, these themes are, you know, the thread that joins all the different aspects of my life, the understanding that we're all human beings and we all deserve the same treatment. It's just as simple as that in my mind. But the reality of it is much more complex and different than that. Yeah. Now, in the work that you do, I think one of the criticalities that people fail to understand is that you look at the world and you think, I'm in 2023, right? So much has changed. And I think you touched on it earlier, is that it only takes a crisis for us to realize that, no, 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 people revert 
to their default. How much have you found has actually progressed? How much of it is tokenism progression, which is what I, you know, what I'm calling it. That's the, the word I'm using it, particularly in the workplace. So for me, my my central core belief and a space I would want to do further study and given the opportunity is really that that workplace because as your mother said to you earlier get a degree before you get yourself hitched to somebody so that you have that independence I believe when women are economically independent and they're thriving in their work environment the choices that open up to them are so much more right um, and they sense and a lot of people's sense of identity is wrapped up in what they do right and how they contribute into the world so in terms of um the complexity of the intersectionality so faith um gender um multiculturalism and how that intersectionality is playing out in progression in and i'm particularly interested in the leadership space right because that space for me there's been very little movement in that in that space there's a lot of rhetoric there's a lot of talk there is some movement from a gender perspective because there's quotas there's investment there but not much else and even in that gender space it's still a struggle so how are you seeing with the organizations that you're working with how are you seeing that progression playing out and that real commitment where are we at in the workplace Oh dear, where are we at in the workplace? I think we were still, you know, at at the start line in the workplace, especially when it comes to uh, the intersectionality with uh, race and and with religiosity and 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 these sort of things. Um, I was talking at a seminar uh, on Harmony Day, which was in March. And, and I was asked a similar question. I said, um, as people who have very textured life, um, we, when we enter the workplace, we sanitize ourselves. We, you know, we enter, if we are religious, we enter as secular. If we are multicultural, we enter as, as wide as we possibly can make ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 if we are visibly different, we try to remain unnoticed. We try to become as invisible as we possibly can. So we're not targeted. And so we are so that we can end up being treated like everybody else and get the same opportunities. Um, because um the different intersectionalities that that constitute us become barriers to our progression. And you look at any organization, even government, you'll find that the top tier are not people of color. Uh, we have made progress on the gender, but it's a certain type of gender. Again, the intersectionality of gender with race is not there. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said earlier, my experience over the past, 15 years in Australia here has shown me in the workplace has shown me that the glass ceiling uh, for these intersectional um, identity markers is lower and thicker. For multicultural men, 
and multicultural women, it's even lower than for the multicultural men. And the literature tells us that in terms of representation, we're less represented. Uh, you again start looking at boards, you'll find mm -hmm. the same trend. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm now working on, um, on the space of diversity and inclusion. So um, in my work as uh, part of the advisory council, uh, multicultural advisory council for government, I have been advocating for increasing cultural diversity on government boards. Mm -hmm. And um, I am hoping that we can make progress uh, in that space, because I think if we, if there is an opportunity to have diversity around the boardroom table, then the decisions that come out will reflect some of the lived experiences of people. And we will be able to lift all of us rather than some of us or the elite of us. Again, acknowledging that when we start talking about leadership, leadership also targets the elite. And, and I acknowledge the privilege that I have being able, mm -hmm. you know, um, to advocate for something like that. But it is important to start um, with people at decision making. Where in my current workplace, um, I am part of the cultural inclusion committee at my workplace and advocating again, raising awareness. I think the first step is to raise awareness because privilege by its nature does not know it has privilege. And so the first step is to turn the mirror and let people have a look at themselves. Um, and that is by raising awareness, asking questions. Um, and so uh, I, I now ask questions because um, the diversity committee in my workplace has gender, has sexuality, ability and race, or, you know, the majority of the markers of diversity. And there are multiple markers of diversity. So we look at mm -hmm. the main ones that intersect with each other. And, and I always ask people, so in your committee, how diverse is your committee? And the first response, yeah, we have women in our committee. So diversity yes. is gender. Yes, in Australia, it is absolutely gender. That And a lot of the times what I'm seeing when I'm talking to corporates and clients is when I come along in the room, it's like, well, we've got women on our leadership team. And so a lot of the workplace feels the work is done if you've got women, but it's only, it's more or less about just having them in the workplace. There isn't a conversation around, okay, so you've got them in the workplace. How inclusive is, even if we're just talking about gender, how inclusive is it of the ideas and the values that they're bringing? How is the organization morphing and changing because of the gender equity? It's just almost a tick. We've got the women in. And, and when you step back and say, okay, if we're just focusing on that binary indicator that you've got, which is just one that, you know, I'd rather focus on a lot, but let's just talk about the one that you're most interested in. A lot of the times it is still that recruitment phase, right? Where it's, we've, as long as we've got the target, right? And if you look now at tenders that are coming out for government big contracts, it is still targeted at getting the numbers through the door right? Okay, you get them through the door, 
then what? Right? Exactly. How do they thrive? And I think that part of the question, even if we're just sticking to gender, where there seems to at least be some incredible buy-in um, to, to focus on that, it's still then just focused on one aspect, which is a numbers game, right? Because the other aspect requires a fundamental shift in how you've done things, yeah. how you've thought, and that requires me to do some work, Christy. Exactly. And that willingness to make that organizational change, particularly in that realm of leadership elite that you talked about, that's where I'm finding that feeling is quite thick in that in that sense, in that if you look at who's running corporate Australia, if you look at how they're running corporate Australia and how it's inclusive, and not even just corporate Australia, corporate globally, it's still not shifted as much as I would have thought by now or would have liked by now, even on that one binary indicator. Absolutely agree with you. And 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 there are multiple layers to that one. So one of the first responses I get when I start talking even about uh, gender or cultural diversity is merit. That is oh, yeah. the first thing that comes. Oh, we recruit on merit. So you talked about recruitment as, you know, what people are making progress in. But even within that, there are barriers. People assume that if you are um, of a different race, if you are of a different culture, then you lack merit. And so that, key, you know, that flag is always... Uh, put in front of my face when I start talking about cultural diversity or even gender diversity, we recruit on merit. And, and the assumption that uh, we don't have the skills, the abilities or the knowledge is um, offensive in a way, because sometimes we have a lot more than what they are asking for. Remember the story of my husband, you're too qualified for us, we cannot afford you, yet merit is still a problem. And so we have to deal with that. And we find that even when the door is open for us, we tend to work harder than everyone else because everyone around you thinks that you are below par and you end up having to work harder. And, bec and that becomes just the norm that you mm -hmm. end up working harder, longer, better than everyone else to get the same level of acknowledgement. Uh, vertical progression continues to be a problem. And, and um, I guess another challenge for us is when we start talking about cultural diversity, the gender lobby gets annoyed because um, it, it's seen as a zero sum game. The places at the top are few and they are now occupied by a certain group of privileged elite. Mm -hmm. And so when women come knocking on the door, there are no extra chairs. So someone has to be kicked out. So we're not elevating everyone by creating more space. We are displacing someone to bring in someone from the outside. And that is why it has become a space that is contested between people who um, don't see that bringing others in serves their interest. It's, it's a zero-sum game. And until we come to a point 
where we don't see this as competition, but as collaboration, where we open the space. So there are more chairs around the table. We're not displacing each other. Only then will the conversation uh, become one where we can engage uh, with others without talking about merit, without talking about all these barriers. Um, and, and, and this is structural. And we're not yet there. We're still talking about displacing someone so that we can elevate someone else. And, and the displacement then becomes based on other markers. So then older people feel they're gonna be displaced. So that younger people who are either women or culturally diverse men can share the space. And I find that people like you and me who are visibly different are brought in as the symbolic token of uh, demonstrating that this is a culturally inclusive um, workplace where you appear in all the posters, you become the celebrity, you know, you sit on the first line with all the celebrities, um, but it is still symbolic. Yeah. And the literature is telling us that for any um, group uh, of people who are along this intersectional diversity to feel included and to engage in um, substantive representation, there needs to be at least 30% of them because you can lean onto each other. You support each other. You don't become the single voice in the room that people can ignore when you speak and you make a suggestion or a comment. The eyes glaze and then the 10 seconds of silence and people moving on, which is a form of microaggression again. But then mm -hmm. you find that 10 minutes later, your idea is picked up by somebody else. Mm -hmm. and, and that somebody else is like, wow, what a great idea. Let's do it. And so it, it's those sort of things. But when there is a group of you, 30%, then you can lean on to each other leaning mm -hmm. in, supporting each other, collaborating, discussing, and having a much stronger voice um, around that decision-making table. So um, just getting the one person also depends on the personality, how strong that person is, how experienced and how articulate that person is in framing the issues that they want to bring uh, to the table and that they want to raise awareness um, uh, in. And so again, in the literature, this type of people is called a critical actor because they become, they galvanize and, and they engage in a way that changes the conversation for those sitting around them. So again, we're finding that even when we're invited in, and I'm saying invited in, it's not yet a right, Mm -hmm. Still, you know, at that charitable uh, space where we're part of a quarter or we're part of a policy that has not yet become a right. When we're invited in, we we have to have almost superpowers to keep uh, the conversation going and to keep the door open for others to come in. And when yeah. we 
And when we try to keep the door open and others come in, we are held responsible for the behavior of those who come in after us, as yeah. if we are linked by an invisible umbilical cord. We don't hold the mainstream responsible for the behavior of others, yet we are seen as a collective, a group that is linked by this invisible umbilical cord. And what you do or what I do in the workplace, you become responsible for it. And, and, and you can be held responsible for my shortfalls and limitation as an individual and, and as an individual performer in the workplace. And that is That's exhausting. It is exhausting. And Michelle Obama, um, really very openly reiterated that in Becoming, where she talked about how that whole tenure in the White House for them was an orchestration of understanding exactly that point. They were the first African-American family that were in the White House. Their level of scrutiny, they could not make a mistake. They could not falter. They could not even stumble, right? So that is why for her that tenure was exhausting because to operate at a level of what the world must see as or as perfection requires a lot of back of house curation right you cannot fall down on this you cannot fall there is no room for error and i had a similar conversation with even my son uh you know i said to him one time unfairly it is unfair what i said to him but it is correct the world will judge you as the child of, as a black child, first of all, as a child of a single parent, as a child of a single black mom, like it just goes on, right? And then everybody who fits that demographic profile that you represent gets lumped in every time you make that mistake. Whereas your friends, on the other hand, don't get judged by the same stat. And he didn't understand that. And I've had this several iterative conversations with him so many times to get a point across, not necessarily to say, you know, we live in doomsday, the world is unfair. No, but we live in a world where practical realities of how things operate, like the symbolism that you talked about, right? The symbolism of having a black woman on a board or having a woman on a board or having a person with a disability on a board or having a person from LGBTIQ plus on a board. The symbolism, right, is kind of the first step that people are taking and ticking that box. And again, you talk about the invitation. I've heard people say things like, oh, will they let us do this? And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, how does the word let come in? But when you look at the history of colonization, where people were not allowed, where another set of human beings with certain characteristics, because that's all it was, certain characteristics made a decision that those characteristics gave them an element of elitism that we are going to get into your space and we are going to enforce our elitism because we know better. And that was, again, simply based on having less melanin. In, in, and so you grow up, there's a generation of trauma in a space of a generation of people where you're still waiting to be invited in to that, to that space. And that is ingrained in our unconscious bias, in our psyche, and a lot of that decision-making that we make. And that point that you made earlier, that sometimes you make yourself as white 
as possible in a certain situation because if you sound white you sound more intelligent right quote unquote if you have a thick accent all of a sudden you know my level of intellect is questioned if I have a degree god forbid from an African country never mind the fact that those degrees are based on the British Empire's education system which is what is here in Australia I am trying to understand where does the divide come from from an educational perspective when in our essence we're all former colonies of the same you know education system that has morphed into being what it is there's so many of that and I could talk to you for hours (laughs) we opened the door Christina (laughs) we have gone over time and so you know as much as I want to continue um we, we're definitely going to have to bring this to a close, but I really would love to bring you back on almost a roundtable discussion around that. You know, you and I are both passionate about this topic. <laughs> this, is our, this is our life work and asking yeah. those, those really intelligent questions, but not from, you know, I love the fact that you bring what is the literature showing? What is the data t- showing? Because a lot of the time people are talking from an emotive perspective and that can get shut down pretty quickly in the workplace right but when you're presenting data and what the literature shows the numbers don't lie right they really do not lie and this is what the numbers say you know the human rights commission is doing that survey which i'm sure you're very familiar with Mm. the leading change uh, survey where every five years they're looking at one indicator which is multiculturalism and its representation in the c-suite for our asx 200 listed companies in government, in federal government, local government, and looking at just that one indicator. And it's still in the early, you know, two to three um, percentiles, including our indigenous population. And Mm. then when you look at, if we take the merit argument, when you look at the university graduates, when you look at the high school education, when you look at the qualifications and the hoops that you have to jump through as a migrant, and the you know you came as a skilled migrant, you were already an architect. Uh, you know, last time I checked, buildings in Sudan are still standing. Like you know, and so you look at all of that education that you come with, and you're asked to do more, and the lack of recognition around that, and those systemic structural barriers that are still there in that policy space and how far we've come and how far we've got to go. I think that's a conversation we need to revisit. But Dr. Faisal, if people want to follow your work, where can they follow you? Where can they find you? Oh, gee, look, I have resisted having um, a website of my own or a page of my own. And um, I think uh, I do bits and pieces uh across an, a number of areas it's it's more like the scatter gun um so i work with government i work with um ngos uh on boards with communities with schools uh whoever or wherever um i have the opportunity uh, there are places where i am invited in mm-hmm. and when people invite me in they expect me to behave but they don't know what they're getting. Uh, and I just want to refer to the work of Yasmin Abdelmajid, who mm-hmm. mentioned that uh, she grew up thinking that if she worked hard enough, she'd be just like everyone else, one of them, the elite. Mm-hmm. And, and she talks about the um, model minority. 
So mm -hmm. to be invited in and to be allowed to stay in, you have to be part of the model minority that behaves itself all the time. I think I'm old enough to know that I don't want to behave anymore. Um, and I want to do things in my own way. So I think if you just Google my name, you'll get the bits and pieces of the work that I do. Um, and and uh, the generosity of people like you who every now and again bring me in and, and record some of the things that I do so that you can put them out there and people can follow the work that we uh, constantly do here and overseas. Thank you so much, my dear friend. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for your generosity. And I really loved learning about you know, um, Sudan, I don't know anything about Sudan. I've never had the privilege of visiting. Uh, so it was really good to learn. Um, we in Southern Africa know very little about North no. Africa. Um, I must I must say, because when you're in Africa, a lot of the times I think you don't appreciate traveling your own continent. I appreciate it more now that I've moved away, um, you know, and been here and met, you know, the richness of our continent here in Australia. So I really enjoyed learning a lot about that. So thank you so much for your time. So everybody, thank you for tuning in. Um, until next time, when we bring you another amazing sister of color, where we delve deeply into their world and learn more about what drives them, what, um, what changes they're making into the world. Uh, it's goodbye from me, Christine, your host. And I'd like to give a shout out to Utana Global, who are the sponsors of this podcast. So until next time, goodbye for now.